Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with Jess Scully, the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Australia, and author of the new book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World. From 2009 to 2017, Jess was the founding director of Vivid Ideas, a 23-day event of talks, workshops, and exhibitions. And she was also a founding contributor to the Sydney Culture Network, a citywide collaboration of cultural institutions. It's rare to find a politician who uses creativity and the arts to engage communities and to consider how we can begin to overcome our biggest challenges through storytelling. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Jess. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. I'm really excited to chat with you. So just to begin, we'll start with something light because it's first thing in the morning for you. What's at the top of your mind at the moment? Oh, gosh. Look, I have to do a talk next week that I have to prepare for. And I'm trying to pitch the idea of an Australian Citizens Assembly on climate. Mm. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to tell that story and get people excited about it. And so that is just constantly playing in my mind. Mm. Well, you're always working on different things. I mean, uh, in the intro, we talked a bit about how far reaching your work actually is. But most recently, you... um, you put a book out called Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World, which is a great title. It's important to note that it's only been available for about two months. Did you make it during the pandemic? How much work was happening during the, the lockdown? Tell us a bit about it. Look, here's the thing. I actually uh, thought I had finished it, Andrew, and I wrapped it up nice and neatly at the beginning of the year. And I thought, I've got the Australian bushfires in. It's up to date. Everyone is feeling this way right now. And then COVID happened. And I realized, you know, actually none of the recommendations or key ideas needed to change, but I needed to put that framing context in there. And then, you know, as a creative sector practitioner for my day job, I lost all my work instantly. And so I was at home and suddenly had a bit more capacity. And so I threw myself back into re-editing the book and bringing it up to date with this new set of challenges. So it really went to print, um, I think, in July and and captured a lot of that mood of the first wave of COVID. Mm. And what is the book about? The book is basically, I've stood at a lot of protests in my life, right? And I've stood there waving a placard and shouting the slogan and I've signed the petitions and, and I've raged online and, and, you know, I've even stood for office. But quite often we find ourselves passionately protesting against things, but very rarely do we have a list of the things that we do if we got our way, the things that we put into action if we got that meeting with the minister, the things that you are protesting for, not against. And I wanted to put together as holistic as I could uh, a narrative of the things that we we could have in the world, that we should be asking for in the world to get the kind of future that we can be excited about. Because I feel quite quite devastated, really, that, that people don't look to the future with hope at the moment. Mm. And we, we kind of expect that tomorrow is going to be harder than today. 
And I want to give people a sense that there are alternatives to the way that we do things right now that are practical, already in practice in lots of parts of the world, and that that are things that can address some of those sort of twin challenges that we experience now with the climate crisis um, and the inequality crisis and the COVID crisis, which is sort of an echo of both of those. Hmm. Has COVID shifted any of the thinking that you explore in Glimpses of Utopia? Like, are there things you wrote in the book that you would like to change now? No, not really, because the story is really always about fairness and changing our focus. Mm -hmm. You know, in Australia in particular, but in lots of parts of the world, we have an extractive economy. Our entire economy is based on digging things out of the ground and shipping them overseas to get burnt or, or turned into something else. And it's such a limited and ungenerous approach to the economy because what it does is that it underestimates the contribution of the people who live here um, and our our human capacities. And I think our key human capacities are caring and creating. You know, those are the things that robots can't do very well, not for a very long time, and that you can't really globalize, that you can't really downsize that much. And so those are the most future-proof industries in the economy. Um, they're also the ones with the lightest environmental footprints and they're the ones that have the, the best flow on effects in terms of the people that they serve. And so that continues to be the central thesis of my book, that mm. we need to shift from this extraction to a creative, a knowledge and a caring economy. And then all the rest of it is sort of an architecture on how we get there. Mm. So this idea of utopia, which clearly you're touching on, and rethink utopia as an idea is at the beginning of your book. How do you personally define utopia? What is utopia to you? You know, for me, utopia is, it's not one physical form or one ideology. It's not one set of rules. It's that every person is a part of it. Mm. That's all. It's just that every person participates, feels valued, and their contributions are valued, you know, and that they feel that their values are reflected in the society that they're a part of. And you know what? Sometimes I think, how do you how do you reconcile those things when people might have wildly different values? I think it might go back to to looking at what some of those real intrinsic core human values are and those things that unify us regardless of political ideology. People everywhere in the world, no matter what they believe, believe on leaving a better world for their children Mm. or their nephews or their nieces or their neighbor's kids or their dog. They believe in leaving a better world. They don't want to hand on a dystopia. So for me, it's about finding a way to help everyone feel like they're needed and part of that and to genuinely draw from everybody's ideas and solutions and and their capacity to contribute to that better world. Because at the moment, we, we're sidelining vast quantities of people, you know, vast numbers of people, and that's creating a, a great sense of disconnection and unease. It's leading to a lot of the political instability that we're feeling in a lot of parts of the world. And we're also only really building the world to the benefit of quite a few people, Mm -hmm. not because of a conspiracy, but because of business as usual. Mm. And I feel 
really concerned as well that a lot of people have turned to conspiracy to explain that sense of injustice that they are experiencing. And I want to offer people a better explanation for why they're they're justifiably feeling the way that they are. Mm. Utopia connects to this idea of, of indigenous knowledge as well. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do you think we can bring that back into what we might now call the knowledge economy or into a place that is more a part of our everyday life and, and everyday knowledge, really? You know, there's, there's a lot there and there are lots of different paths that you can go down with that. I think it's it's really important to note that Indigenous dispossession is sort of the, the original sin of a lot of the societies that we live in, you know, in Australia, in the US, in, in so many parts of the world. And an inability or an immaturity to deal with that has, I think, been an ongoing source of conflict and tension that, that can't be reconciled until we have a genuine process of, of truth-telling and treaty-making. Um, and I find that the countries that are further along on that journey are more able to have those reflective and far-reaching discussions that they need to have as, as societies, you know, places like New Zealand, um, where, where they have actually got a treaty and where they do centre Maori knowledge and, and Maori approaches to, to, to governance and to, to land rights, to, to so many things that are really important. So, look, I think it is foundational. There are sort of more transactional ways that we can bring that knowledge in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work with some extraordinary people and I work with an amazing guy called David Beaumont who is a, one of the key Indigenous staff members at the City of Sydney. And he talks about the idea of how do we make sure that we're sort of paying our dues when it comes to using Indigenous knowledge and is that approaching Indigenous knowledge from an IP perspective and treating it as another form of unique knowledge economy uh, knowledge that Mm. needs to be traded and brought into our economic system. I can understand that as an interim measure or something that we need to do to address that disconnect and that lack of capacity and knowledge in our mainstream society and that we should pay Indigenous people for for the work they do, implementing the knowledge that they have through their culture. But there is something more foundational about it. And, and I had this exact conversation with Stephanie Gutierrez, a Lakota woman from Pine Ridge Reservation in, in South Dakota. And we also sort of threw our hands up and just thought, you know, is it part of the problem if we try and bring this deeply spiritual and sort of holistic approach to the world into this quantified and transactional way that we we manage knowledge in many Western contexts? Mm-hmm. But I think what we got to was it's a step. It's, a, it's part yeah. of the journey, but it's not the final destination that we need to reach. And I would actually argue that the the patronizing quality that could be possible there actually goes away when it's formalized in a transaction that is appropriate for today. Using today's tools to solve this problem, I think, is super interesting, which which connects to this idea of you have to see it to be it, right? But for 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 many who don't see anything worth putting faith into right now, how do you go about thinking about how to make the, the, the hopeful future that you talk about actually visible. 
Yeah, yeah. That's that's really, really hard, isn't it? Um, you know, I mean, I think we all have someone that we we look to and we kind of – we take courage from their courage. And I – I get that from, you know, looking online and seeing what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing and how she's communicating and how she's built a movement of people who are drawing courage from her, you know, audacity and her willingness to step forward. And then in my own work, you know, I draw it from from Clover Moore, who is the, the Lord Mayor of Sydney. She's a really progressive, independent woman who has served at, at various levels of government, but she's been the, the Lord Mayor of Sydney for 16 years now. And she's really pushed forward a progressive sustainability and social justice agenda. Um, and so, you know, I I can walk in their footsteps and I can, I can follow them and I can show people that there is a path there. And, and the thing that gives me hope as well is that I can see the excitement and the enthusiasm that people like that generate in other people, that they've been waiting for someone to say this stuff that just makes sense, mm. you know. And and so that, I think, is heartening. I think telling those stories, voicing the vulnerability, not always having the answers but asking questions is another thing that I think is really key in bringing people along. And also it's the way that you get the best solutions. So, Mm. When I think about your question, I think it's having those people that you can you can look to and you can follow in their example. It's asking questions and knowing that you're always going to get to a better place by having more minds in the room and more diverse minds in the room. But it's also being able to tell stories and give examples of where there are alternatives. One of the sort of downsides of this this goldfish news cycle that we live in that I, I know you guys are against as well. <laughs> I, I've never heard goldfish news cycle. That's a, that's, <laughs> that's a new one. I like it. One of the downsides of it is, is that you think that this is the way that things have always been, right? Particularly if you're younger and particularly if you don't have the benefit of uh, you know, a whole lot of knowledge or education to draw from. But this is not the way things have always been and things aren't like this everywhere. And so part of it is just like throwing open those blinders and pushing back the, the walls of the room and saying, this is the world, this is the span of history, these are all of the different mm. ways that people live and organize and decide. And you have so much more to choose from than these meager choices that we're being offered, you know? Especially at this moment, or at least here in the States, trust in government and politicians has just completely eroded. Here too. Yeah. I mean, globally, right? And, and New Zealand's doing pretty well. Yeah, they are. Shout out to New Zealand. <laughs> but either way, we still have to sort of restore faith and trust in democracy and process. And so I know that you have this unique way of merging art, communications, poetry, visual poetry with policy, which is rare. Drawing from those sorts of communication skills into policy and government. Do you think that there's a new kind of wave of a generation coming up that that will start to understand a more interdisciplinary approach to shifting things? I hope so. I think so. I think we're looking at a a generation that's coming up who were kind of born connected 
to each other and to the world and who were born storytellers and who don't have the old boundaries that we might have grown up with in terms of, you know, what is what is work and what is entertainment, you know, between national borders. You know, perhaps that's changed a little bit now, but really they're globally connected. Really they are the, the prosumers that we were promised in the early 2000s, you know. They make as well as consume content. And I think they have, in a sense, had that idea of, of having a voice democratised in a way in that they've been given permission by these platforms, which are problematic in some senses, but in other senses, they've given everyone a microphone and a camera and they've, they've told everyone your story needs to be told. So in a sense, they are starting from a, a really great place to solve some big problems. They're also kind of they're waking up as part of the the largest collaborative experience that humans have ever encountered, you know, and they have access to all of this knowledge. So I do think there is a sense of connection there that perhaps we didn't have. What might be lacking though are some of those options. Like how do we give people more choices to choose from mm. so that they can use those incredible tools that they have in aid of something that is transformative and systemic um, and actually gives them genuine change, gives us all genuine change because that's the thing. We don't have time to leave it to them. We kind of have to do it all right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the subject of innovation and doing things kind of right now, you you look at society as a series of operating systems. That's one of the sort of notions in your book. What are some of the things we can do immediately to upgrade these systems? Yes, I think that is a really helpful way of looking at them, right? <laughs> you don't just set and forget your phone or your computer and just think, well, that worked in 1865. I'll, um, I'll come back to that later. That should still work today. <laughs> You know, we're we're dealing with a 21st century world that is evolving so quickly with a whole set of 17th, 18th and 19th century institutions, if we're lucky, 20th century institutions. And the world of business and commerce is in constant upgrade. They're incentivized to, to stay up to date, but civil society is not. And democracy hasn't had an upgrade for a very long time. And I'm not necessarily talking about digital democracy because I know there are lots of um, movements to kind of have your elected representatives there as a sort of person by proxy voting based on polls. And and that sort of thing isn't appealing to me. Yeah. Innovation doesn't have to be digital. Yes. That's it. Innovation is just solving a problem differently. Um, And something that I've brought from the, my work in the creative world is I would often encounter people in one industry with one problem and people in another industry with a solution that they were using for something else. And then the question was just just crossing that over and, and finding a way to use the, the solutions of, of one area in another sector. And, and that quite often works. So when I think about the operating systems that we can upgrade immediately, the first one I think about is politics because I feel like it's quite foundational. Mm-hmm. It's the way that we make decisions as a society. And at the moment, the people that we have representing us, um, for the most part, are not representative of the 
vast majority of the population. They're almost always, almost everywhere, older, richer, whiter, more culturally homogenous, more likely to be male, more likely to be very wealthy and and be landlords rather than tenants and less likely to have had a diversity of life experience, more likely to have been lawyers and management consultants than to have, you know, worked in in a childcare centre or a bar or, you know, as a transport worker or as a nurse. So we have people with quite a limited life experience making big decisions for quite a diverse population in many countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So what we could do, I think... Of course, I think we need to elect more representative people. That is an important thing that we need to do in the long term. But between now and then, I think we need to institute more forms of citizen participation that are accessible to more people so that we are drawing on more minds as we make those decisions. And there are lots of different ways of doing that. There are tech-enabled ones. Um, Places like Iceland have moved to a kind of gamified online um, decision-making approach for a lot of their public spending. Um, And the the more analogue counterpoint to that is there are parts of Brazil, where, which is kind of the home of, of uh, p- participatory budgeting, um, where they have been public meetings and assemblies and gatherings over the course of, of many years. Then there are ways that we can help people get issues on the agenda. And in the US, you do have a version of this with the, the referendums that you often have on, on state policy, mm-hmm. but that isn't that common in a lot of parts of the world. And in Estonia, there is now a law that – actually, it was a constitutional change – so that if a petition receives 5,000 signatures, it becomes a bill that is presented to parliament and that elected representatives have to vote on. And that is one way to help citizens set the agenda and help decide what goes on in their parliaments. Mm. But I think one of the most um, important immediate forms of action that we're seeing in places around the world is the idea of a citizen's jury or a citizen's assembly. Mm -hmm. And this is something um, that I'm really passionately advocating for in Australia. And we've recently seen take place in the UK and in France, and we're about to see one start in Scotland as well. Basically, this is a demographically representative group of citizens who are empowered and in most cases actually paid to spend time working on this stuff, who are given all of the information, access to experts and the power to decide, the authority to have their voices heard and and listened to. And they are making some really transformative recommendations. And so just in terms of of kind of the immediate upgrade to politics, that would be my very first starting point. And then a lot of the other stuff flows on from there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating to think about who's in power and who who has the power to decide. You know, in the book, you write about how public funds have helped make some of the richest companies and executives even richer. You use Apple as an example. Could you explain and elaborate on this setup? Yes. Well, look, the case for public shares in in Apple has been made very strongly by an economist named Mariana Mazzucato. And she talks about the entrepreneurial state. Basically, she talks about the way that the public purse funds a lot of the private innovation that we celebrate so much and that extracts so much value from the economy as well. Mm. 
So Mazzucato makes the point that almost everything that makes an iPhone smart was funded by public money. Um, it was funded by university R&D. You know, everything from the GPS system, which was funded by the what is now the US Space Force, to the touchscreen, which was developed side by side in, in two universities in different parts of the world. The internet, of course, which came about from, from ARPA and DARPA. And, and really so much of the technology that underpins the, the knowledge economy and the digital economy was funded by public investment in universities, in research and in science. Uh, so there does need to be a dividend that goes back to the public for that, for that benefit that's being extracted and is at the foundation of the wealthiest companies in the world. Mm. And then there are other ones, right? So Apple is a sort of a little bit more at an arm's length. But I think the case of Tesla is is one of the most obvious in terms of direct public funding. You know, Tesla received something like 430 million US dollars um, in funding at a very early stage in its development. It was at a stage actually where they were, I think, struggling to get private investment. And they had calculated that the rate of interest that they would pay on private investment was astronomical from a VC investor. And there was a clause in that contract uh, that said that the US government would take a percentage of shares, you know, if it wasn't repaid in a certain period. But of course, the investment paid off very quickly and Elon Musk repaid that investment within the contract period. And um, the US government, I think, made a really, really small percentage of that and and Yet, if you compare that with an investment, a similar but smaller investment that Musk had made the previous year and what the value of those shares are today, it's in the order of billions of dollars. And mm. and that's an example of when a government can also play the role of a venture capitalist, but it takes all the risk and derives none of the rewards of venture capital. I mean, connected to this, you you explore this idea of the haves and the have-nots and write about how the haves are just getting richer and more powerful. And so I guess what, what kind of political tools can be used to effectively create greater equality here to create a fairer world? I mean, that's uh, such a huge question. I think when it comes into ideas like the fair reward for public investment, there is a need for us to address some major global issues like tax loopholes and, um, and, and tax havens and the role that um, a lot of developed economies are playing in, in tax loopholes and tax havens, which, which undermine the viability of many democracies and the capacity of many governments to provide the social welfare that, that supports equality. So, look, that is a really important part of this story. And it does also speak to, to deriving back some of the benefit that these, these big companies that the public have invested in, deriving some of that back to the public purse. You know, some of those companies that we talked about that are very good at, at taking public innovation and, and privatising it and capitalising on it are also very good at moving their money to places where they don't have to pay any tax. Mm-hmm. And those companies end up being free riders on on the rest of us, you know, the roads that their delivery drivers drive down, the the schools that their employees go to, the police forces that, that patrol outside their stores. We're paying for them, but they're not 
they're not contributing. Uh, so I think tax and dealing with our global system of tax is a really, really important part of that story. I think we do need to look uh, at some fundamental issues around land. And this is a, a whole other conversation about cities and, mm-hmm. um, and how we apportion one use over another. But having some really thoughtful conversations about the highest and best use of the land that we have and that we service around cities, this is a similar idea around public investment and private extraction in that the value of your house or the piece of land that you live on isn't intrinsic to that piece of land. The value is derived from the public amenity that is provided to it by the excellent cafe on the corner that everyone wants to live near, (laughs) by the bar that that people are performing at, by the transport system, the public art, the park, the parks. All of that stuff is either public investment or social activity of a community, and yet the landowner extracts all of the value from that. And I'm not saying that that you can't have private property. What I'm saying is we need to look differently at how that value is proportioned and goes back into the system. Mm. So, look, just a few small things, <laughs> uh, you know, Spencer, just like tax, land, politics, finance. And so much of this is going to be thrown you know, out the window when it comes to the climate crisis that's facing us. And and I know this has affected you and your country greatly uh, last year with the, the wildfires. And so I'm wondering, you know, what are some things the politicians, private citizens, even corporations can do and now? Like, what advice are you giving to people in terms of thinking about and dealing with the climate crisis? I think the first thing I would say is that uh, everyone is scared and everyone's worried and everyone is, is feeling a sense of uncertainty about the impacts that this thing will have. But I think likewise, a lot more people than you'd think are willing to contribute and sacrifice to help address the problem. And because of that, I think we need to move the political conversation out of the paralysis that it is in. And that is why I'm really um, passionate about getting citizens to make those recommendations as they have done in those climate assemblies because I think even in countries that tend to vote conservative, people are willing to to sacrifice and to do a lot and to make quite courageous recommendations about climate action. And those recommendations give politicians courage and social license to take action. It's a way to short circuit the influence of donors and lobbyists and the media moguls that distort the public discourse. And that is, we need to short circuit that process because we need climate action right now. In terms of things that that businesses can do um, related to that, I think we need a shift to the circular economy. And that is a shift away from the linear make-take-waste approach that we have currently to one which quantifies all the externalities. The stuff that you dump at the rubbish dump, actually you're responsible for it. The the place that you got those materials from, actually you're responsible for them. And it's got to be part of the cost. And there are parts of the world that are much, much better than than we are at this. I was talking to the the MD of uh, the managing director of IKEA in Australia, and he comes from Finland, and he said, "I had no idea how much stuff you guys throw away here in <laughs> Australia. We throw out twelve hundred kilograms 
of waste every year to landfill per individual. Whereas where he comes from, it's more like 30. So we are astronomically wasteful. And I feel like in the US, it might be a similar sort of Probably thing. worse. Possibly. Look, you, you and us, we're, we're racing to the bottom together. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but he said, you know, they have laws where he's from in Scandinavia and in Europe where mm-hmm. a retailer has to take back a product that they sell you and they become responsible for it. And we need changes and we need, we need industries to also advocate for uh, product stewardship laws, which mean that that businesses are actually responsible. And that actually helps to balance out the playing field. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, people who pollute are doing it for free. And everyone who's trying to do the right thing is paying extra. And there are accounting systems like a taxation system called X-Tax, for example, which are the accounting system for the circular economy because what they do is they push tax, again, my favorite topic, push tax away from taxing human labor and human ingenuity and creativity and they move it to taxing resources so that Mm. you're taxing the stuff that you don't want to see wasted. And so it's all connected. And and this is kind of why the book ended up getting so big because you start to tell part of this story and you realize all of these stories are connected and they are holistic shifts. It's not to say that everything has to happen at once, but making one change can have a catalytic effect on the rest of the network of effects that need to take place. Yeah, good and bad, I mean. That's right. Before we let you go, what is giving you the most hope as we emerge from this time? What is... As we come out of COVID, as as things begin to change and hopefully the next year, what is giving you the most hope from this period? Oh, you know, the thing that gives me the most hope, Andrew, is that here and in many parts of the world, for the first time in my life, I saw people, I saw governments put society ahead of the economy for a minute, for a brief moment there. And this lockdown or, or shutdown that we've seen, to me, it was a global act of care for the most vulnerable people in our community. It was people saying, I will suffer for this, but I don't want my neighbours to get sick and I don't want my grandparents to get sick and I don't want to see suffering that is unnecessary. I don't want to see healthcare workers um, pushed beyond um, their capacity. That was a transformative move, I think. You know, in, in the, the time that I've been on this earth, everything has been about growth and economic production and nothing has stopped that. No, it's, it's never stopped for a moment. You'd, you'd see a global tragedy and the stock market might close for a day. And instead this year, everyone just stopped and thought, we're going to take care of each other. This is a big, scary experience that we're all going through together. And I think if we can extrapolate from that and think what are people owed apart from just safety in a pandemic? Are they also owed clean air and water? Are they also owed jobs that are dignified? Are they also owed a place to live that is fair and affordable? And if so, how can we redirect and reorient our governments to provide those things and to take that care? So that's what's giving me hope. It's the fact that we, we had this pause 
And it's also giving me hope that people are thinking that there might be another way out, another way forward. And hopefully looking to the world and finding that they're already there. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on today, Jess. This was really amazing. Thank you. It's been so lovely to chat with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. 